If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter number 13. We'll look at verses 1 through 6. While you're turning there, in the way of introducing our passage for this morning, I would remind you that much of what we have studied in the book of Hebrews thus far has been focused on exercising our minds. In other words, the, com the commandments that we have studied together have been focused on what we do between our ears. For instance, the book of Hebrews says, consider Jesus, a call to quietly contemplate the goodness of Jesus that has sustaining force, it has the effect of creating perseverance in us. Meditate on the things of God, those praiseworthy attributes of Jesus. Think of him. The book of Hebrews says, keep your eyes on Jesus. This is, again, the kind of command that requires not a physical response so much as something mental. We're reflecting, we're focusing, we're fixing our gaze, not on the finish line so much as we've said in weeks past, but beyond the finish line to the reward that awaits us in Christ, the warm embrace of Jesus, our Savior. The book of Hebrews commands again and again that we would know the superiority of Jesus over all things, that we would hide away in our heart this reality that indeed Christ is better, that there is no earthly gain, for that matter, no spiritual being or gain that is to surpass the wondrous riches of glory in Christ Jesus. He is truly the best in every sense without qualification. Know that he is better. And in that knowledge, rest, rest, and find satisfaction and fulfillment. The book of Hebrews prompts us to remember that he is our great high priest. I find myself encouraged at the idea that others are praying for me. So often, so many of you say, praying for you, pastor. Send a message and say, praying for you, pastor. And I'm so refreshed and encouraged by that. And then I remember that Jesus is praying for me too. At the right hand of God is the Son of God who intercedes for me, who prays for me, who pleads his blood on my behalf. Again, no call to action but a quiet, contemplative rest in Christ. The book of Hebrews calls us again and again to reflect on who Jesus is and informs us that this has sustaining force or effect in our life. But eventually, eventually, what we know, what we believe, makes its way into our actions. It bears itself out in the things that we do. And that's exactly what Hebrews chapter 13 and these concluding exhortations are about. If you found your way there, please join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 13, six verses, three commands. Here's what God's word says. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Marriage must be respected by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. 
Your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. I've always struggled to know how to give expression to this distinction between knowing God and knowing God. It exists all around us. There is a folk religion, a competing folk religion that exists around us that has co-opted all of the language of the New Testament, all of our terminology with regards to our relationship with Jesus, but it has no saving force. A knowledge of God that knows nothing of the power of God. When I was a boy, a teenage boy, and beginning to drive, I, I, I followed after my father's firm rejection of seatbelt usage. It was always the position of the family, and this was talked about often, especially when seatbelts were mandated, that it was not the government's business what we did in the privacy of our own vehicle. And so there was this quiet, unobserved act of rebellion that we would not wear the seatbelt. Now, I knew of the safety that seatbelts could provide me. I'd seen all the statistical data. I had examples of that in my personal life, friends and family who had been impacted positively and negatively by wearing or not wearing seatbelts. I knew, I knew, but I wasn't wearing it. No government telling me what I got to do. And then I had the accident. And experientially, I knew in a way I had not known before of, of the positive benefits that that seatbelt could have afforded me. Now, I knew it before, but now by experience, I knew. You know what the product of that new knowledge is? It's almost second nature. I don't even think I just begin to reach when I get in the car and on goes the seatbelt. And, and, and the danger of the presence of this folk religion and this distinction I want to make that I struggle so to communicate is that there are so many people in our culture who know and affirm, they've, they've seen what amounts to the statistical data, they would affirm the goodness of God, the truthfulness of the gospel, the moral superiority of Christian ethics and values. They would be in agreement with everything that we'll read in this passage, but they don't do it. They don't do it, and their life is not shaped by the message of the gospel because they have yet to crash into the gospel. They don't know it in that experiential kind of way. What's in their head has not yet connected with their heart such that it begins to shape and affect and impact every part of their life. As we look at this passage, I want you to know that the goal of preaching, that the goal of the gospel, that the purpose of Christianity is not to make you moral people. The gospel is not about making bad people be good people. The gospel is about making people dead in their sins and trespasses, alive to God in Christ Jesus. That these commands are the product of the work of God's Spirit in us, not a mechanism for winning the favor of God or being morally superior to those around us. 
Here are the commands. There are three in these six verses. Verse one, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. There's an overarching command in those verses that you would let brotherly love continue, or more basically, show brotherly love. Apparently, there's a measure of brotherly love at work within this Hebrew congregation, and the preacher wishes to see that continued. I think what he's doing here is giving us three ways that we can show brotherly love, the first of which is to show hospitality. Now, we are blessed, fortunate to live in the hospitality state. There are a few Tennesseans among us, but for the most part, we are hospitality state people. And even for those who are Tennesseans within our congregation, you know something of the benefits of living in a hospitable culture, in an area where, where we wave at one another when we meet on the street, we speak whether we know you or not. When we pass in the grocery store, you at least get the finger on the steering wheel when you're going down the road. You know, you do that thing. I don't mean the bad one. I mean the good one, you know. <laughs> I probably should have thought that phrase through. For those of you listening, that was a positive thing. <laughs> We're just a hospitable people. But there's opportunity for us to, 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 be, to be distinctly Christian in our hospitality toward other people, right? To go even beyond what's culturally appropriate. To really labor and strive to be extra hospitable toward those around us. We've said in weeks past, of all people, we as Christian people touched by the gospel should be a people marked by kindness and gentleness and tenderness toward others, by humility and just grace in general. We ought to be a people characteristically kind. Here we're called upon that we would show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Often this verse is referenced to suggest that there's an army of angels that are walking around us. We are unaware of their presence. They may appear as strangers, and that may indeed be the case. But it seems here that the preacher is leveraging illustrations from the lives of those very saints he cited in Hebrews chapter 11, specifically Abraham, among others. Abraham was often greeted or encountered by those he thought initially to be strangers, only to later find that they were indeed angels or messengers from God who were bringing the word of God, the promise of God to him and for his family. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing so, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing. This idea of hospitality is a really big thing when it comes to walking with Jesus. In fact, if you look or think to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the qualifications for an elder or an overseer, one of those qualifications is that he be hospitable. I got convicted of this years ago and really began to think about ways to be hospitable, and I've come to this conclusion. It is a really difficult thing to be hospitable toward other people without opening your home to those people. You know, we talk a lot here about small groups in a home setting practically because we don't have any more space to have groups or small groups, connect groups here on the campus of our church. But even more importantly than that, the more basic element there is that there's just an experience of hospitality and fellowship that is unique to the living room or the dining table of your home or someone else's home. Something we can't replicate in the neutral ground of a classroom setting here on the campus of our church. 
you can attend connect group with people and even attend connect group with people over an extended period of time without really knowing them with any degree of intimacy. But you will always know the people you welcome into your home. And you will always know the people that, are, that have welcomed you into their home. Think about this in the context of our Sunday morning gathering. When you look around and you see people who have that awkward look of not knowing when to stand, sit, or what to do, or where we are going next, or what in the world is going on around them, treat that as an emergency. Sit with them, guide them, help them, point them in, in the right direction, and I would dare say invite them to lunch. And as it's acceptable or appropriate, invite them even into your home. It may mean planning that for another day. Our home looks like a tornado pass through when I get home from church on Sunday afternoon. One of the real benefits of being the preacher, I have left the house before my children woke up every Sunday for the past 16 years. And I thank God in heaven for it. <laughs> but I hear from my wife every Sunday afternoon, what a disaster it can be in getting those three boys dressed and corralled and into a vehicle and here at an acceptable time. I get things like that can happen and there can be challenges with opening your home and you want things to be such. One, you're going to have to get over that because everybody's a mess just like you are. But two, two, there's just a level of intimacy and an expression of hospitality in inviting people into your home that you're not going to replicate at, at the restaurant after church on a Sunday morning or in any other setting really. It's unique to the home gathering. A part of what it means to be hospitable is to open yourself and to open your home, even to strangers, as it might be appropriate. One of the ways that you can show brotherly love is by being hospitable. And then there, there are two more things mentioned in verse number three specifically. Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Remember the prisoners and remember those who are mistreated. This is not a condemnation of us or a word of chastisement in any way, just a, a note from personal experience. Anytime I find myself worshiping with or preaching, especially preaching, in a setting where there's a congregation that doesn't enjoy the level of comfort and affluence that we as a congregation ordinarily do specifically in African-American and Hispanic context, I always note that there's a greater sensitivity to the needs and the struggles of those imprisoned, those who are mistreated, those who are disadvantaged than I ever really hear among us. I think there's just a nearness there, a heightened sensitivity to those experiences. Our tendency from where we sit it's typically to think with regards to those who may be imprisoned or mistreated of the decisions that they've made, the choices that they've made that have contributed to these outcomes in their life. And, and, I, and I get that. Choices, decisions are always a part of consequence and creating outcomes in our life. This passage does not call upon us to make an evaluation of, of the, the lovableness of someone in determining whether or not we will love them. In fact, it calls us to pattern our expressions of love and thoughtfulness, our brotherly love for others after the love that Christ has shown us. You didn't deserve what Jesus did for you, nor did they. 
But our call is not to evaluate their deservedness, but to love indiscriminately. Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them. Remember those who are mistreated as though you yourselves had suffered bodily. We of all people, we of all people ought to understand what it means to receive far more than we have ever deserved. The same measure of grace that has been showered down on us, we ought to stand ready and willing to shower on others as well. I'll tell you the real challenge, and this is, this is an ongoing challenge. This is the kind of thing that I've really struggled and wrestled with for a long time in ministry and within my family and within my wife's family as well is how to remember well the prisoners and those who are mistreated in a way that doesn't further enable or encourage the very behaviors that landed them there in the first place. And all I know to tell you is to be cautious against the spirit of the Pharisees that always paints yourself in a better light than it does them. And remember, listen, bear in mind that it's always our, always our decisions, our, our choices that are contributing to these consequences. A lot of you are making the same kinds of poor decisions, but you're able to keep the plate spinning, right? But eventually, eventually, your poor decision-making is going to be married up with circumstances that are beyond your control, and you may well yourself find yourself in that kind of situation. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. He took his father's inheritance. He spent it on prodigal living, but he was still okay, right? Remember the story Jesus tells? But then the famine came. He was able to keep the plate spinning until the famine came, until circumstances beyond his control. And some of you are in a situation that is eerily similar to that of the prodigal son. You've made poor decision after poor decision after poor decision. You're keeping the plate spinning. But there are circumstances coming down the pike that are beyond your control. And on that day, you'll pay the piper. We haven't received what we deserve, and we thank God for it. And so we're gladly to issue forth to others what they themselves don't deserve, showering them with the very grace that Christ has shown us in the shedding of his blood. Continue in brotherly love by showing hospitality, remembering the prisoners, and remembering those who are mistreated. Look to verse 4. Here's the second command in our passage. Marriage must be respected by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. First part of that verse says marriage must be respected by all. That is, from birth to death, male and female, children and adults, all are to respect the covenant of marriage. Which I take at least to imply that we could probably do a better job at instructing even our children to respect the covenant of marriage well before that time in their life when they're making decisions about entering into marriage. If you're waiting until your children are prepared to pop the question to begin to teach them about marriage, you have waited far, far too long. Most of their fateful decisions have already been made at that stage in their life. As small children, we have to instruct them to teach them of, of the blessedness of the covenant of marriage. Even if you are among those with the gift of singleness and you will live the duration of your life without entering into marriage, you are still called upon, commanded in this passage, that you would respect the covenant of marriage. Maybe you have been married and by circumstances beyond your control, the death of a spouse or a, diver a divorce that was not your desire, you found yourself 
in a place of singleness and perfectly content with that place of singleness. And you think, I have washed my hands of this marriage business and I have moved beyond that place in my life. Even you are called upon to respect the covenant of marriage, a covenant granted by God, an institution given by God to exhibit the grace that Christ has for us. Christ who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, putting your needs even above my physical well-being. I will serve the needs of my bride. That's the covenant of marriage. Marriage must be respected by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled. What does it mean to keep the marriage bed undefiled? It means that the marriage bed is not to be tainted by the presence of anyone outside of that covenant. It means that we are to maintain a standard of sexual, moral purity before, during, and after marriage. We have to get beyond this place, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas. You have to get beyond this cultural indoctrination that says that sex outside of marriage is a rite of passage. It is not. It is a sin against a holy God. Notice, notice what the passage says. The marriage bed be kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. What's in reference there is the judgment of God against adultery and sexual immorality on the last day when we stand before the judgment bar of God. But even before that, in a temporary sense, it is written into the constitution of mankind that there are certain judgments, certain consequences for stepping outside the boundaries established here in this verse. In other words, God is not lifting a finger and judgment is coming as we step outside these boundaries. When you violate the command of God for you, when you step outside the bounds of moral purity, when you defile the marriage bed in any shape, form, or fashion, there are consequences that inevitably come with that. It's written into the constitution of humanity. It's, it's, it's that God knows what's best for his people. There, there, there's a waning confidence with regards to marriage in our culture, so much so that Gen Z is marrying at a much lower rate than the generations that came before. It began with my generation, the millennial generation, but now has picked up steam with the next. So that young people are waiting into their late 20s and even 30s if they ever marry at all. And they're looking at how fragile marriage seems to have been with their parents and others that they have close experience or relationships with. And they're saying, if it's this broken, we're just not going to enter in. Rather than entering into marriage, which has the appearance of, of such brokenness, it seems to be so fragile, we'll just cohabitate, or what my granny called shacking up. And from a worldly perspective, just in a practical sense, it would seem to make sense, right? Like we're going to practice at this thing, and if over the course of time this has the feel of working out, we'll stay. But otherwise, no one's lost anything, we'll go our separate ways. Practically, it makes sense. If you're an athlete, if you're a football player, you practice all week long so that when it matters, when the game is on the line on Friday night, you're able to perform with precision and excellence. It just makes sense. But the statistics tell us that when it comes to couples who cohabitate before marriage, the divorce rate goes from the 50% experienced across the plane to more than 85%. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? What I'm more than suggesting here 
is that God knows what he's doing. That God has decreed what is best for his people. It's not that he wishes to rob us of pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment. And this is just one of many ways that this works itself out in our life. You you think you can sort of sail through, and you're the exception. I got it. We love each other, Pastor. We're not married yet, but we're going to get married. We're engaged. It won't be long. There, There are no exceptions. The overwhelming majority of marriage issues that make their way to the counselor or or that culminate in divorce are the product of poor decisions made in the days leading up to the marriage, bearing consequences they're unprepared to deal with even after the marriage. Do you know know why the overwhelming majority of wives having issues within their marriage will say their number one issue is communication? Communication. Because the overwhelming majority of those relationships began under circumstances where men didn't have to express themselves verbally. They had the opportunity to express themselves physically. And if you give any man that option, he will exercise that alternative. They don't learn to communicate in that season of of courtship. Unreal expectations begin to be established. And the consequences of that are dreadful over the course of time. By the way, that little illustration is not to suggest in any way that women are primarily responsible for the moral purity of their relationship. Men, the responsibility lies with you. In other words, if there's an individual within that relationship that bears the bulk of that responsibility, it is you. You see to the defilement of some young girl, wooing her and persuading her to do things, to commit to acts outside of her convictions, and you will stand before the wrath of a holy God and face the consequences of your sin. Don't let the marriage bed be defiled. Doing it God's way has always been the best way. I don't say this with clenched teeth. I say this with a heavy heart. I see so many people making dreadful decisions, doing dumb things that can only result in disaster. Convinced all the while that they're going to skate, they're going to slide through. I've almost come to a place in premarital counseling where I don't even expect that the couple is coming into counseling having been morally pure in their relationship. That's a shame. And I can know in a congregation of this size that there are men in this room, there are men in this room who have defiled the marriage bed in secret by the things that they're observing on television or the internet. And they think they'll skate. They feel some sense of justification in that. Your defilement is no less than the physical act of adultery. You've brought shame and dishonor on your bride. And there may be some women who've done the same, bringing shame and dishonor on their husbands. And the consequences will be dreadful. Again, God not lifting a finger. This is written into the constitution of humanity. But make no mistake, at the last day, account of your actions will be taken. And the memory of our God, the detail with which he is aware of your every step, by far exceed the capacity of your web browser's history. Let the marriage bed be kept undefiled, for God will judge the adulterer, the immoral person at the end. Now this command in verse 4, I think, is coupled closely with what is said In verses 5 and 6. So far we've heard that we are 
to continue in brotherly love, that we are to honor the covenant of marriage. And then third, and lastly, that we are to be content or to not be greedy. Verse five says, your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You set out and you think, if I can get to this place, I'm going to be satisfied. And then you move the goalpost. You say, if I can get to this place, I'd be satisfied. And then you move the goalpost. And then you say, if I could just get to this place, I'd be satisfied. And then, then you move the goalpost. The reality is if your aim is to be satisfied by any degree of earthly gain, you will forever be moving the goalpost. There's always a new trend. There's, there's something next with regards to fashion. There's a larger home down the block. There, there's a new fleet of cars manufactured with every year that passes by. You will never be able to quench that insatiable, sinful hunger for more and more and more. If you make that the aim of your life, you'll be like the rich fool forever building barns while storing up a storehouse of judgment against yourself against that day. Always moving the goalposts. I think the thing that makes this especially challenging is the fact that we have real responsibilities and obligations, material and financial responsibilities. I have always wanted to be able to provide for my wife and for my children at an acceptable level. That, that's, a, that's a motivating factor for me. I, I, I think I'm kind of an ambitious guy. I have set goals along the way and sought to achieve those goals to meet those ambitions in life. The, the struggle is keeping that in balance, right? If that becomes the focus and we're so given to imbalance, if that becomes the focus, then, then we're just building barns again, right? Moving the goalpost and forever dissatisfied or, or unfulfilled. But if you can get yourself to a place where you can strenuously rest in the pursuit of those ambitions, those goals, to meet these real spiritual obligations... Like, I want to provide for my wife. I want to provide for my family. I want to be able to give in this kind of way. I, I want to be able to have a home that I can invite people into and be hospitable. I want to be able to do certain things while resting in the knowledge that Christ is good. And even if, even if a famine comes, even if there are times or seasons of, of poverty when the, the ability to do such things is not there, even if it means our struggling together, he is good and I can rest in his provision for me. Understand again that everything that we're called upon to do in this passage and the verses that follow is built upon the theological foundation established for us in the previous 12 chapters. If we know that Jesus is better, that he will meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory, if we can hold fast to the promise that indeed he is good, a high priest who is near to us, like unto us, representing our needs before the Father, representing the Father before us, if he is all this book claims that he is, it makes no difference if we're filled or hungry. He's good and enough. What can man do to me? I, I, I want you to, I really want you to feel this notion that he is 
enough. Because when you do, there's a certain invincibility that comes with that. Like, your, your attitude today cannot be influenced by the things that happen to you or around you if Jesus is enough. Like, you can leave today and someone can crash your car and you can make it because Jesus is enough and it ain't yours anyway. You, you can be stolen from and robbed and even physical harm be done you. And it's okay because Jesus is enough. This, this has to be the spirit, the, the theological framework for the resting of our souls. Now, here's the deal. I, want, this is, I really want you to see this. Because, again, the goal is not to be more moral when we leave, but to be ever nearer Jesus. All of us, the consensus would be, we agree with what has been said in these six verses. With the exception of the sexual ethics thing, there are probably some among us who would push back at certain points, and that's an antiquated idea, and we have to evolve and move beyond that. We're more progressive thinkers than what they were in the first century. I, I suspect there could be a few who would suggest such things. But for the most part, we would be in agreement. You would affirm the, the moral goodness of what has been required of us in these verses, right? But then you don't do it. Like you don't, you don't do what, what the passage says. And you're right back to teenage Wade, knowing the protection that can be provided by the seatbelt, but waiting until the crash has happened before it really settles into your heart. I don't get this ability, and listen, I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, form, or fashion that when we come to faith in Jesus, that everything is just right and, and pure and holy from that moment forward. God in heaven knows that we can foul it up more often than we ever get it right. And when we do, we rest in his provision of grace. His grace is sufficient for me. But I cannot understand for the life of me this persistence in unrighteousness while heralding our knowledge of God simultaneously. I just don't understand it. I refuse to believe, have never believed, and will never believe that a person can be truly touched by the power of the gospel and be altogether unchanged by that encounter. Some of you have that pre-accident understanding of seatbelt safety when it comes to the gospel. You know all about it. You affirm its truthfulness. You would be in agreement with what the Bible says concerning the gospel. You know something about Jesus. But you have not yet crashed in to your great need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. My invitation to you this morning is to know by experience his great goodness. Taste and see that the Lord our God is good. Because here's what you'll find, apart from that experiential knowledge of Jesus, you don't have the ability to do what these six simple verses have required of you. You can't do it. You can talk about how good they are and wish that people would do them. And remember a day when America was better when people did it like this. But you can't do it. You can't pull it off. For all of our poetic waxing about how good things used to be when people did things differently, you're contributing to the disaster we find ourselves in at the very moment. You can't keep the standard that you so often speak of. Our only hope for honoring these commands or any others 
is the abiding presence of God's Holy Spirit in us. You must repent of your sin and believe on Jesus and ask that his spirit would come to abide within you, granting the ability on the best of days to honor the commands that have been set before us and the spirit and the comfort and the consolation on the worst of days to catch us and remind us that our standing with God is not the product of our righteousness, but his righteousness alone. You must come to Christ. I've asked of you what you cannot do. But what Jesus has invited us to is a power to do in us beyond our natural capacity. You need only taste and see by experience that he is good. And in doing so, find rest for weary bones. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for the challenge of this passage. We thank you for the presence and work of your Holy Spirit and those who have indeed believed. We believe, God, and we ask that you would help us with unbelief. And I pray, God, for those who know all of the right things about you, they have all of the necessary information in mind, would affirm the goodness of commands like these and passages like this. But somehow there continues to exist this disconnect between their head and their heart. And I pray, God, that you would attend the preaching of your word this morning in such a way that the weight of conviction would fall on the hearts of those who have violated your will in any way, that you would help them from the very bottom to see Christ as their only source of help and hope and strength, to look for him for forgiveness and mercy. God, I pray that you would save to the uttermost, that you would enable in us what is otherwise impossible, we could keep your standard at any level. We pray that you would forgive us where we've come short of that, where we've made a mess of our lives, where we've made a mess of friendships and even marriage, where we've built bigger barns rather than seeing Christ as our sufficiency and fulfillment. We pray that you'd forgive us. Put back together what we have broken down. Restore to us the years the locusts have taken away. I pray, God, that you would save some, that you would sanctify the minds of your people, that our meditation wouldn't be on the perverse thoughts generated by a pornographic culture around us, God, but on the things of Jesus and the satisfaction that you have ordained for us within the bonds of marriage. God, forgive us of our many sins and our great immorality. Help us to walk worthy of our calling in every way. Move among us in these last moments and may Christ receive all the praise. It's in his name we pray.